0: Welcome to Through the Dark Woods podcast, a space for conversation around navigating grief and trauma, ancestral healing, cultural repair, village building, and deep nature connection. What will it take to rebuild healthy, connective culture in a world where we've lost so much? Schools don't teach this stuff. Western society has spent the last thousand years destroying these old ways of knowing. And yet, these skills are deeply needed for us to navigate a global crisis of ecocide. My name is Josia Tamira Crossley. I'm a somatic therapist, grief worker, ritualist, and the founder of Through the Dark Woods, real life skills for navigating grief and trauma, a three-month long online skill building and process-based group, which helps participants find the heart in our common humanity while building resilience and increasing our capacity to be with the full, beautiful aliveness of being human. Our next round starts March 7th, 2022. You can find out more at throughthedarkwood.ca. Link is in the show notes. I acknowledge that this podcast is produced where I live and work in Kathet, unceded traditional territory of the Kliaman, Klahus, and Shichel people. My own ancestors came across the ocean from the northern lands and islands of what we now know as Europe. I acknowledge that I'm still learning about reconciliation and how to live in a good way on this land, and that my intention and prayer is that this podcast may directly and indirectly support repair of the harm done through colonization of this land and its traditional people, as well as repairing the even older harm done by the colonization of the old world, as we might call it. May this work benefit all beings everywhere. May all beings be happy. May all beings be free, free of suffering and the causes of suffering. And may we all recognize liberation together. So today I'm super excited to be welcoming to the show Day Shildkret, an award-winning author, artist, ritualist, teacher, and Day is internationally known for his first book, Morning Altars, which BuzzFeed calls a celebration of nature and life. Working for over a decade with individuals, communities, and organizations, Day is helping to heal the culture through a meaningful and creative response to change. Day is the author of Hello Goodbye, 75 Rituals for Time of Loss, Celebration and Change, which just came out last week into print and is already on back order, so only available through Amazon and Barnes and Noble for the time being, with a second print happening in March. It is also available on Audible if you're an audiobook lover. So I'm super excited to welcome you, Day.
1: Welcome, Day. Good to be here. Yeah, great to have you here. Super excited. So yeah, I think we first met through our dear mutual friend, Christine and Toli. And you spend a bit of time with my son too, Yarrow at, at different social gatherings and things, but we we haven't actually spent that much time together. So I'm just super excited to have this opportunity. I
2: know your son better than you.
1: Yeah, you do. <laughs> yeah. Well, he is quite the social Great kid. So. Yeah, thanks. Aw, yeah. So, one of the things that actually sparked my desire to have you on the Through the Dark Woods podcast is that Christine was telling me that when you first started doing this mandala process that you're very famous for now, that it was actually coming from a place of being in a deep, deep grief, going through deep grief yourself, and that this is this process of making these incredible mandalas came out of that. And so, I'd love if you would start by talking to us a little bit about that and, you know, the connection with the process and your grief process and what happens there for like, what happened there for you and also what happens there for people who you've guided.
2: Sure. Yeah. I'd say just first and foremost, you know, I'm not really entirely sure how this name came to me, but I call them morning altars and not necessarily mandalas, mm. partially because it's a different experience and a different practice. And also I'm, you know, I'm a Jewish person, person living in North America and an artist. And so there are similarities, but they're an entirely different thing.
1: Thanks for clarifying that. Yeah, 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 yeah.
2: yeah. And, you know, I'd say that that practice was really born in a time where I was on my hands and knees grieving, you know, and pretty wrecked by the way things were. And at the time, pretty much within a vicinity to each other. I had a double whammy of my father's death and a significant breakup, the relationship. And and also was, you know, someone who was, I think, just learning how to carry grief. And so Mm -hmm. ground was shifting under me and I didn't, you know, it was like the burden that was given to me was definitely more than I could handle. But So, properly brought me to my knees, but at the same time, you know, falling to my knees actually put me in touch with the earth.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: So, you know, by getting on my hands and knees, I actually realized I can make something with my grief. And so Mm -hmm. that practice was really born from taking a walk in the woods with my dog, who was my dad's at the time, and I adopted her. And we go on these long walks and One day, you know, I just actually did have to sit down because I was grieving so much. And, you know, I don't know if Yarrow did this, but a lot of kids kind of like, you know, they sit on the ground and they they just like play with things, branches, Mm -hmm. they pull grass. you know, it's just like a very innate behavior Mm -hmm. to just sit on the earth and actually just play with whatever's in the vicinity. I did that. I was playing with mushrooms at the time. (laughs) And I let myself really play with it. And an hour went by. And by the end of the hour, I had this symmetrical piece of art in front of me. Mm -hmm. And I realized in retrospect that what was happening was I was taking the disorder that was happening in my heart and mind. Mm -hmm. And I was my hands to order it. And so I made a 30-day commitment to myself, could I return to that same spot and make new pieces of symmetrical art? And so I did, I went back to the same spot for 30 days and I collected things along the way and I made art and made order with my grief.
3: Mm.
2: And then that didn't stop. And, you know, I continued to do it and I put it out into the world and apparently it was a wanted thing in the world. And mm-hmm. and then people in all different kinds of countries started to actually, you know, not just make art And alters with their grief, but also with their joys and wins and questions and wonderings and, you know, with whatever was going on in their lives. And so this little thing that started out with my heartbreak turned into a movement of, you know, tens of thousands of people around the world. I mean, right now I'm training 100 people. You know, we have five continents in our first cohort. Amazing. We have prison psychologists. We have children therapists. We have memory care nurses. We have—I mean, so many different people. They're going to bring these to their community, and so this whole practice that started off with me trying to understand the change and really the the loss in my life by metabolizing it into more beauty—it actually spread into. Wow, so powerful!
1: And I love what you said about. Just the bringing order from disorder, like having you know feeling into that disorder inside of yourself, and through making that beauty, it was like an ordering or putting things in their into their their place. And I'm curious about the connection with nature piece because I just found out too that we have this similar eight shields nature connection background, and so it, it feels like there's like a reciprocity happening there with nature. And I wonder if you can say a bit about that, and then also like the name altar or morning altars is, is that about a reciprocity with something else?
2: Yeah, great questions. I'd say first and foremost, you know, the word reciprocity is definitely connected to the practice. I call this a practice, there's seven steps. My first book is really a, I'd say both a poetic and a very utilitarian, well, and, and a beautiful, you know, there's a hundred photos in it, but it walks people through these seven steps of this practice. And, you know, in, in retrospect, it was only until doing this practice hundreds of times and having a lot of curious people ask me what I was doing that it actually formed into any called seven steps. I mean, yeah, yeah. only being further down the path did I realize by looking behind me what I was doing. It wasn't like mm-hmm. I did originally, you know, I didn't conceive yeah. of that. And so there's a part in the practice, it's the fifth step of the practice, which is called gifting. I mean, every piece of this practice is really relational. Mm-hmm. So it's all about stepping out of yourself, stepping out of your home, stepping out of your certainty, And stepping into the unknown, stepping into creativity, stepping into reciprocity, stepping into relationship with the natural world, and really stepping into relationship with impermanence because Mm -hmm. practice is all, it ends with impermanence and begins again. So with regard to reciprocity, the fifth step is called GIFT. And actually, it's funny that we're talking about this because we're right now building the curriculum for the next big weekend with the teachers and it's all about gifting. And so this step is very much about taking the altar, the very thing that you're making and realizing that it's not just about the art. It's not just about the creativity. It's actually about the dedication. More so, it's actually about, it's about uplifting, you know, because altar, you asked about the words, the altar etymologically means to raise up. Or to ripple out, and so the praising, the blessings, the reciprocity piece is the taking this from yours and to raising it up and out so that it serves something greater than you. Mm. And so you know that could just be a, an offering to the land itself. It could be an offering to your family. It could be offering to the time and place that you're living in. It could be off. I mean, whatever this act of giving and taking because that's really what the practice is right like you go to walk you're foraging you find material aka you're taking but you're not in my practice people are not just taking you know there's a permission that's being asked so there's a constant give and take
3: mm.
2: in practice mm. and what i teach a lot about is beauty how can you take beautifully how can you give beautifully mm. and so the practice is really about the reciprocity of just being alive and being human and relearning how to because you're on the take all the time as a human being
3: mm, so
2: yeah. the reciprocity piece is to realize that and not to shy away or turn mm-hmm. away from that to actually you know be frontal with that reality and to recognize that your responsibility and our responsibility as human beings is to give back through our hands through our mouth through our feet through our bellies through our imaginations through our eyes whatever we have so many senses to give back to the world and so there's that and then with regard to the language and the wording piece i mean morning altars is spelled morning like this morning because that's when i was doing you know building these altars and altars because really in the beginning i was putting my grief on an altar
3: Mm.
2: but it happened to be that plenty of people were searching for my website and putting the spelling differently. And um, it came to me years later that actually there's a double entendre with the spelling, which is mourning like to grieve and altars like to change. Love it. A beautiful play on the words, but I didn't intend that.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. I love it. Yeah, and I just love this piece around placing our grief on an altar. And then you said it's like becomes that in that fifth step, that offering up to something, something else, right? And and that's that's so beautiful because yeah, when I'm talking about grief work with people too, it's like that. That's a step, right? Of the you know the medicine that pulls us forward. I think is that being able to, you know, transmute in a way that now we're offering something, yeah. whether it be to to the world or to other people or to to nature or yeah. So that's such a beautiful that it's just integral and woven into the practice. And something you said earlier about that, you know, during that time when these altars first started coming through you, it was this, this time of where you were learning to hold grief in your life. And, and I think that, you know, for so many of us who bring, end up bringing this work into the world is like, you know, it's not, there's not a lot of people out there, at least for, for my generation and yours, that where it's like, there's, there's all this holding of it happening and all this teaching of it happening of how to hold it, right? We're not really taught those skills. And yet it's like somehow the the learning that happens through our own process ends up becoming, becoming part of the gift that that comes into the world of that, that offering as well. And I want to ask you about, you know, that learning to hold grief process and what was the relationship with grief in your family of origin while you were growing up? And, you know, what did you imprint kind of as way to do
2: it (laughs) well you're asking I mean I come from a culture which is not you know kind of a forgotten culture I come Mm -hmm. from a Jewish culture Mm -hmm. which is a very distinctive culture and a very distinctive people Mm -hmm. and I mean we have a lot of pride as a people Mm -hmm. and we also have a lot of trauma as a people And in that question, I mean, you have to understand, you're speaking to someone whose great-grandfather lost his entire family 80 years ago in the Holocaust. So, and all of my family basically ran from where they were living for hundreds of years because of pogroms. So 80 years ago is not long.
3: It's not
1: long at
2: all. It's just right there. Yeah. And so... When you talk about grief in my family, you really, it has to be expanded a little bit more into understanding trauma as a people. And therefore, because it happened so recently, and also my family and many other Jewish families ran so fast and so immediately because the danger was so imminent Mm -hmm. that so much was left behind. And miraculously so much was carried forward because the culture is very strong. And also we have this is not our first time of genocide, attempted genocide. So we know in a way what it's like to be threatened. And this conversation, you know, I mean, is literally on the heels of two days ago a synagogue in Texas being, you know, someone coming in and, and basically keeping hostage of the people there. So this is not disconnected. And then on top of that, I grew up in a time that was enormous, almost full throttle materialism. hmm You know, the 80s. hmm
3: So,
2: you know, you're coming from World War II into the 50s, which is where my mother and father grew up, at a time where it was all about, like, forgetting. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, we won. Let's forget. Yeah. Or let's celebrate. And everyone can get what they want. You know, Mm -hmm. like that's the vibe of the 50s. And then what I grew up in in the 80s was very much about like, not only can you get what you want, but you don't even know what you want. And we're Mm going to sell you everything you think you want. Mm -hmm. So AKA double forgetting. So there's on one hand trauma and on the other hand, enormous amounts of forgetting. Mm -hmm. Now, you happen to be contacting me a week before my new book comes out.
3: Mm
2: -hmm. called Hello, Goodbye. Here's the book.
3: Yes!
2: (laughs) The introduction of the book goes deeply into this. Mm -hmm. Because if my family lived in the place that they had lived for hundreds of years, Mm -hmm. if they ate the food that they ate for hundreds of years, if they sang the songs that they sung, Mm -hmm. if we lived in a village setting like we had lived for hundreds and hundreds of years, Mm -hmm that book would not be needed.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And so I wrote a book that is more so a consequence of loss than it is a consequence of anything working out. Mm-hmm. You know, And here's the double, triple, quadruple whammy, mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. which is the, the introduction begins, you, know, you wanna talk about grief? I'll mm-hmm. talk about grief. The introduction begins with my mother. My mother has dementia. And there was a time recently last year where she forgot my name for the first time. And so the book starts off with the question What do you do when your mom forgets your name? What is the ritual to do? Do you just carry on with your day as if nothing happened? Or what do you do to mark that moment? You know, and so the opening of the book is really about. How do you ritualize these moments that mean something, but there's nothing that as a Jew, there's nothing that my culture says to do. As an American, there's nothing that the country says to do. In my family, there's nothing, we have no experience with that. So it's an important moment. I mean, this woman named me and then she forgot my name. So the first part of the introduction is going into what I actually did. The second part of the introduction asks the question, and this is connected to what we're talking about. If it's possible for an individual to lose their memory, is it possible for a culture? And there is a huge chasm of grief that most people don't know how to articulate. Yeah, Because they're hungry for something they don't know that they want, and they don't know that they need, but they know something's missing. Mm -hmm. So I write in the introduction of this new book. Now, the book is a response to right now there's 36 life transitions in the book. For instance, you know, you lose a pet, your dog dies. For a lot of us, and mine did a few years ago, that's an enormous heartbreak. That's the grief in a losing a pet is tremendous.
1: Oh yeah, when my dog died, I grieved harder than I've ever grieved for any human.
2: <laughs> but the imbalance is this. For most people, the grief is tremendous. Mm-hmm but no one what knows what to do. Yeah. So, you know, one of the chapters in the book is the rituals for losing a pet.
3: Mm-hmm. And
2: there are others like that in the book of what do we do, you know, for weaning?
3: Mm.
2: Most people don't do anything, yet they feel heartbroken. Yeah. Well, they feel, you know, I interviewed 250 people for this book. Wow. Mm. And so there's a lot of this, like, I'm feeling confused. I'm feeling relief and I'm feeling grief. I'm feeling Mm -hmm. like, you know, something's changing, but I don't know what to do about that. And so this book is very much a response to, in some ways, remembering that at those moments, those threshold moments, something is asked of you. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: Don't just carry on with your day. Mm -hmm. Stop. Call your people to you. Do something. Make meaning. Don't let those moments pass us by, because that is what makes us human. Yeah, yeah.
1: And I think there's something that happens if when we do let those moments pass us by, as though they're just another, you know, making lunch or whatever. You know, it's like there's almost like a a traumatic yeah. thing that happens there, or like a buildup of of something.
3: Yeah,
2: it's normal addiction, is what it is. People are addicted to normalcy, yeah. and they're. Tra- To get back to the thing that they think they know, Mm -hmm. the thing that they think is familiar and comfortable. Mm -hmm. And grief and change and impermanence and unpredictability, all of these things are profoundly uncomfortable Mm -hmm. because you're not in control. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, so ritual orients us. Mm -hmm. It helps us stand on something temporarily and say, Oh, okay, this is where I am. I'm not there anymore. Yeah. I'm here.
1: Yeah. And it's like, you know, it's just making me think about like even the grief around the loss of that, like that cultural amnesia, yeah. you know, having lost, because all of us, you know, it's like the Jewish culture, like you said, is, is still has a, a strength to it and a, and it's known in, in many ways, but there's many, many cultures around the world that, are, that aren't, it's been so long ago since colonization happened that yeah. there's, that, you know, there's such a, a complete loss and, and so to be able to start to find our own rituals to, again that that are are i think you know tell me if you agree with us but like that are it's like in our dna it's like in our cells that we know what to do and like like children you know like you said playing in the dirt
2: yeah i mean one of the ways i talk about this book is that it's a ritual recipe book
3: mm-hmm.
2: and in the introduction you know if you ask 100 people what ritual means you get 101 answers
3: Mm -hmm.
2: But the best way I know how to talk about it in the book is as food Mm
3: -hmm.
2: and really as cooking or baking. Mm -hmm. And it's the same thing with going into a kitchen, which is, you know, you can have recipes that have been passed down through your family. A lot of us do. I do. Mm -hmm. That have been passed down for generations, Mm -hmm. but I'm not making the same food as I did that my grandmother made. I'm mm-hmm. changing it a little bit. Mm-hmm. For instance, in the book, I write about mandel bread, which is like almond bread. It's like a biscotti. Mm-hmm. I grew up eating that mandel bread. My mm-hmm. mom made it. Her mom made it. Her mom made it. But when I make it now, I reinvent it. I use California almonds because I was living in California. Mm-hmm. I put chocolate chips in it. I make it. I reinvent it mm-hmm. because I want, I want it to stay relevant to me because I'm mm-hmm. the one eating. Rituals work similarly, which is they're partially traditional and they're partially reinvented. Mm -hmm. They're partially made from what's been passed down and partially made from what's at hand. And if we hold them too tightly, they get suffocated. And if we hold them too loosely, they disappear.
3: Yeah.
2: It's about how do you hold something and tend to it knowing it's alive? Mm -hmm. And, you know, as an artist and someone that's been creating art for all of my life, Mm. I really am doing my best right now to bring an artist's spirit into ritual Mm. because I think it's been co-opted by religion for too long. Mm. And I understand why, and I understand why certain cultures, you know, try and really preserve it and protect it. Mm. Certain rituals need to be protected and that's honorable. However, everyone has the right to ritual everyone has the capacity to make ritual everyone can and must it doesn't belong to anyone in the same way that cooking and baking doesn't belong to a certain culture my job right now through this book is really to teach people again that they can make it for themselves and how to approach it respectfully but also how to approach it imaginatively
1: Mm, beautiful it's an empowering thing it's like a, almost like a, a newsflash, you know, <laughs> kind of like in a way it's like newsflash, we need this, right? Like yeah, of how critical it is, right? And then you're giving this, yeah, this recipe book, this template for, you know, some ideas. Here's how you can, here's how you can get started. Here's might be some of the ingredients. Here might be.
2: There's 75 actual recipes in the book. Mm-hmm. I mean, each chapter is half of it is going into that transition. For instance, divorce. Right that chapter begins with many pages of going into what is this, what's happening in a divorce
3: mm.
2: Emotionally, logically, physically, mythologically, etymologically, people are, you know, I go deeply into that. And then the second half of the chapter are two actual rituals, mm. recipes mm. that people can do. They can not do, they can toss out some of it. They can replace some of it. They could treat it like it's a recipe mm. and The most important thing is that they do something. Mm -hmm. And I'm actually borrowing a lot of inspiration from my own culture.
3: Okay.
2: I'm giving a lot of, I'm basically reinventing a lot of my own people's ritual to make, to expand it to a broader audience, but I'm basing it in a lot of my people's ritual.
1: And like you said, there's a strength there that you can draw from that's, you know, both inside of you and still available externally. So really, really wonderful template to be able to. And I think, yeah, because I think it's like, you know, that cultural Mm -hmm. that's there. It's like, if we don't have some kind of inspiration, you know, of like, oh, this is how it might be able to be done. Then it's like, how do we even start to remember? And I think that's where cultural appropriation often comes into play as people have this innate knowing of like, oh, we need to do this. This is necessary. But then rather than going, oh, how can I make this? mine or look at, you know, what might be coming through my DNA, my, you know, being my lineage, if we have access to that, it's like we, try, we take what is someone else's.
2: Keep the metaphor alive that I used, because I think it's easy to understand, which is food. People are hungry. And when they're in their presence of food from another culture, especially beautiful, delicious food, I mean... I've been a part of other cultures' rituals and ceremonies, and they're exquisite. And if, you're, if you haven't eaten your whole life, you just want to fill your mouth and shove as much of it in your mouth as possible. Yeah. And there's a it's not just hunger, it's starvation. Mm-hmm. There's real grief around that, you know? And so you have to really check yourself when you're in the presence of another culture's traditions and rituals.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: However, with that said, does that mean that you shouldn't touch ritual at all? So it's a very nuanced conversation, you know? It's like, yeah, don't steal other people's food.
3: Mm-hmm. However, yeah. grow <laughs> your
2: own. Yeah. Eat, but make your own food,
3: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: you know? And look to your – I mean, see if you can find any recipes in your own people's tradition. Mm-hmm. Maybe something there. Yeah. You know, I'm being generous by borrowing from mine too and using that as a point of in reinvention, reimagination in my book mm-hmm. you know, and giving thanks to my tradition constantly as like being so generous to be able to play like that.
3: Mm-hmm. But I'm also
2: employing my sense of creativity to do that. You know, as an artist, that's the license I need for mm-hmm. imagination. Reinvention. Ritual is partially of the imagination. Don't Mm. forget that. It Mm -hmm. lives in the imagination. You know, it's remembered. Yes. It comes from a place sometimes, but it is definitely kept alive through the imagination.
3: Mm,
1: Beautiful. Yeah. And I think we have such a societally, I don't even want to say culturally, because this is part of the where there's the cultural amnesia. I think societally we have this idea that imagination or like the imaginal realm is fake, right? Can you say a bit more about what you mean when you say imagination, what that means to you?
2: Sure. I mean, you know, you can look, we are coming from what hundreds of years right now of rational thinking. Mm -hmm. So we live in a modern culture that values the rational and devalues the mythological and the poetic and the imaginative, Mm -hmm. you know, so sure. I mean, imagination's fake, but what's, what does that even mean? Mm-hmm. You know, I built a whole career off of my imagination. <laughs> Is it a fake career? No, it's not. And it's real. Mm-hmm. So, and like all of our children fake because they're playing in their imagination all the time? Or are they like really reminding us of our like innate sense of being? Mm-hmm. Probably. You know, so like an adult who basically says like imagination is fake is really someone in need of probably a lot of love.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and play and and ritual. (laughs)
3: Maybe.
2: (laughs) Yeah. And also like, as I said, the heart practice, the heart skill of morning altars and also of my teaching is wonder. A man by the name of Rabbi Joshua Heschel calls it radical amazement, practice of being radically amazed by life. Mm -hmm. You know, miracles, to be actually look around at the mundane parts of your life and to see miracles the water running through your faucet, the fact that you have food in your fridge, the fact that this flesh body is breathing and keeping you alive. You know, there are these things we take for granted, but they're truly just miraculous. And part of our job in our humanity is to continue to look, not forget, Mm -hmm. remember the Mm -hmm. smallest things are absolute miracles. Mm -hmm. And our imagination is one of those miracles, Mm -hmm. the fact that we can imagine what isn't there. And I'm not going to label this more than artists, but there have been many cultures who have had many other names for artists and they were held in high esteem because they were the ones that basically repaired the culture mm-hmm. the word artist etymologically is a clue can i tell that, you what that uh, word is? Yeah. You probably don't know
1: yeah go ahead please yeah i don't know the
2: word know. artist comes from the word rt it's just proto-indo-european word which means to fit back together again mm. so it, it's something interesting to investigate to fit back together. Think about like Humpty Dumpty, right? <laughs> the rhyme Humpty Dumpty. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the men's horses and all the men's, all the king's men couldn't put Humpty back together again. The artist's role is repair, healing, to take the displaced and to bring into order or into something recognizable. Take things that don't make any sense and to bring sense to them. Mm -hmm. or awareness Mm
3: -hmm.
2: so this is the role of an artist this is also happens to be the co-purpose of ritual
3: Mm -hmm.
2: to bring sense to things that make no sense sometimes Uh so art creativity imagination Mm -hmm. don't just have a role to play in ritual they're the base function of ritual Mm
3: -hmm.
2: and i don't know if you've ever been in a ritual that's completely stale or flat or dead Mm -hmm. I have many, 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 many times Mm -hmm. because it's missing that creativity. It's missing the aliveness. It's missing its capacity for imagination, to call for the imagination from the people.
1: Yeah. Like some churches, (laughs) there's some great churches out there too, where the ritual is really alive, but I think a lot of, yeah, that was my experience growing up, certainly, that there wasn't a lot of aliveness in that. Yeah, and I just, I love that you that you said that about the, you know, the mending back together. You know, I was thinking before talking with you about this idea that comes from, I think many cultures, like you said, many, many indigenous cultures. So I was thinking particularly of the Hopi culture where they believe that making beauty is actually the most central thing. Because if you don't do that, then everything else will will literally fall apart. And I'm curious, like how you see that in terms of, your work in the world as the, you know, the world is today and the crisis of ecocide basically that we're in and all the levels of that. And yeah. How do you see that?
2: Yeah. I mean, how I see it is what we've been talking about the whole time, which is Mm -hmm. to continue to not turn away, but to turn towards Mm -hmm. what's happening Mm -hmm. and to allow ourselves to learn how to love what we're losing Mm -hmm. and not just to love it, but to make beauty from that grief
3: mm-hmm.
2: and give it back to the world,
3: mm-hmm. and to
2: remember the whole thing was impermanent to begin with, mm-hmm. and to not take for granted what we have right now.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So it's not not supposed to happen. Yeah. What's happening? Because yeah. it's happened. Mm-hmm. The question is: What is our relationship with it? And can we, as you know, there's a African author and teacher, Bayo Kamalafe, who maybe you're familiar with. Bio says he plays with the word witness. And he calls it withness. Mm. And really, it's to st- Donna Haraway also plays with that word too. She's an eco feminist author. And she says to stay with the trouble mm-hmm. is really what I'm talking about right now, which is the role of ritual and the role of art and whatever I align myself with. Mm-hmm. This is what we're doing, which is to not turn away. I mean, this is also Joanna Macy's work
3: mm-hmm.
2: to not turn away, to stay with the trouble, Mm -hmm. to witness it, stay with it. And then my, my job or my purpose is, and then what?
3: Mm
2: -hmm. Okay. So staying with it. Okay. So you're, there's a lot of grief that's coming up. Okay. Then what? And so my role as an artist is let's make something. Mm
3: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
2: Let's make, let's make beauty. Mm -hmm. Let's make song. Let's make something with it. And then it's in the making that this thing changes.
1: Mm. There's an innate thing that's happening within the process without like really doing anything. It's not like we're like actively like going out to save the world or something, but it's like there's an active change or transmutation. You around. are
2: going out. You are <laughs> going out. To. It's not save. It's not the right language. It's mm. not save the world. It's to feed the world. Mm. Yes, yeah, so go-
1: you are going out to feed the world. And there's this natural transmutation that happens where the world is fed.
2: Yeah. And the world can be dying
1: Mm.
2: or our reality can be dying and can Mm. be fed at the same time. Mm. They're not incongruent.
1: Yeah. And I I noticed when I was reading your website that you have a history of working with teens. And I love teens too. I wanted to ask you about that because I just think like with the world as it is in this time, being a teenager is really intense yeah I'm curious like I mean what you're saying already is this you know this making of beauty it's like all of this is like great advice but like is there anything specific that you would want to say to teens or like parents of teens might be out there listening?
2: I wrote a whole chapter in the new book about it
3: okay. <laughs> it's
1: called
2: the chapter is called puberty and I'd say if I had a favorite chapter in the book if I had a chapter where I was like pardon my French but I'm from New York fucking nailed it <laughs> That chapter, I nailed it and I'm proud of it, really. It took me a month to write that chapter Mm -hmm. every day for eight hours a day for a month. And I nailed it because I know teenagers and I know parents because I've spent 18 years working with them, which Mm -hmm. is not an all amount of time. And it's a youth, it's an age group that I love the most. 14 to 18 or 19. I love them so much. Mm-hmm. And it's because they need to be at the edge of things. Mm-hmm. They need to live at the edge of things. They need to be brought to the edge of things. And it can't be the parents that do that. Yeah. It has to be mentors. It has to be every it has to be someone else but the parents that has time in and investment in the adolescent. But it can't be safe. They're constantly trying to break out of safety.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And they're also, because of the world we live in, at first, constantly craving comfort. Role of the mentor is to help them realize, no, 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 you don't want comfort, actually. You want to be at the edge. Mm -hmm. So it's this thing of their their childhood is craving the comfort and the familiarity, but their adolescent is craving the edge. Mm -hmm. And there's a war inside of them. Mm -hmm. And in our culture, without any initiation, we just prolong their childhood until they're someone like 70 and they're yeah. still a kid. Yeah. So the old initiation rites in other cultures, maybe my own, although we have a very dysfunctional initiation right mm. in my culture, mm. it once possibly brought our adolescents to their edges. And in that, their childhood dies off.
3: Yeah. And a
2: hole emerges where the adult comes through. And so, you know, and this whole chapter is really, I, I broke it down into three rituals in, my, in Hello Goodbye mm-hmm. because the first one is an edge ritual mm-hmm. where they need to do something physical, physically edgy mm-hmm. so that they can feel their edge. Mm-hmm. The second one is service. So in the book, it advocates for, the, it's called a big task And it helps the family empower their teenager to prepare and offer a meal Mm -hmm. to their community Mm -hmm. on their own, sinks or swims with them. Mm -hmm. And then the third ritual is for the parents to create basically a memory book with other parents who are going through it so that they can look at their child's growth over the last however many years and their own adolescent and see them side by side and because a lot of parents, you know, struggle with projecting onto their their teenager their own shit from their own adolescent.
3: Mm-hmm. So I have
2: three, you know, two of them are for the teens, and one of them is for the parents. And just, I love it so much. And I love that you're asking that because I really, I really love teenagers, and I love I love being at the edge with them.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. It's so, such an incredible period of life, and. And I love that you articulate it that way because I think I think that's maybe true for me as well, but I hadn't quite named it as that, you know, that edge place and that, you know, on the verge of just like so much is there and waiting for them on the other side. And yet that support up underneath them, like you said, it's like they can't do it on their own and they can't even do it just with their parents.
2: Or their peers.
1: Or their peers. Yeah, because that's the other thing that happens, right? Is they do it that's with That's called
2: their like fraternities parents. or sororities. You can't yeah. do it with your peers. You need someone who's not a parent, who's not a stranger. It's a very specific role. Yeah. Yeah. You know?
1: Yeah, like in, in the H Shields body of work, uh, John Young talks about anchoring, that idea of having anchors. So yeah, like I want, I wonder if you want to say a little bit about, just quickly about that, like what, how might, if a teen or a parent of teens is are listening out there, how might they go about finding, what might they look for? How might they go about finding someone like that to support them?
2: it's not something you go to the grocery store and get, mm-hmm. you know, it's not Kmart or Walmart or whatever you have in Canada or country grocer, <laughs> <laughs> country <laughs> <grocery>. <laughs> you know, I mean, these relationships really need to be cultivated throughout the child's life.
3: Yeah.
2: That's the painful piece is like, you know, like usually if you're looking around, it's a little bit too late. Yeah. You no, know? I mean, you really need to start. I mean, the latest is by like eight.
1: Yeah, that's how it worked for yeah. my son. Yeah, when we found the yeah, the community on Salt Spring
2: and they need some time in with these people. I mean, it could be an aunt, it could be an uncle, it could be a neighbor, but there needs to be both a separation of relationships, like not the parent, and mm-hmm. also like some trust that's been established over some time. It can't be just a random person that you just like asked to do this major thing. Yeah. So, you know, if your parents listening and you're, you know, your kids young enough start cultivating that relationship now. Mm -hmm. If your kid is like 13 or 12 or 13 and you're like, oh fuck, you know, then I'd say that there's other things that you can do. Like that's why I had this, this big service task in there because, you know, it shouldn't be like, okay, you're screwed. Like we need to give everyone. However, if your kid is too old, let's say your kid's 13 and you're like, oh, damn, like, I wish I did this when I was, you know, when he was eight, look around your life. Do you have other families where their kids are eight or six or five? Be that person for another family. Maybe it's too late for you, but maybe it's not too late for another family. So if that's your wake up call and it's not going to benefit your kid. Okay. Yeah. Benefit another family. Beautiful.
1: Yeah. That's so powerful. And I think like also like most of us didn't get that, right? Most of us of our generation did not get that. And and I yet- I can not get it
2: from my uncles. Both of my uncles still to this day are so self-centered. Yeah, right. You know? Yeah. I mean, look, I look to their lives and I'm, I'm not holding grievance. Yeah. But I'm grieving. And the grief I'm transforming, I mean, the grief is written into this book. How do I grieve my uncles not showing up to help me yeah. by writing a book to help other people? Uh-huh. Right No grievance in that,
1: yeah, there's grief in that exactly beautiful and and I think you know, I think what you said earlier about being brought to your knees by the- life- yeah. life situation, life circumstance of what was happening for you, the heartbreak and your father's death, would you say that that was kind of the cathartic, like Francis Weller talks about like the kind of rites of passages that are not not a formal rite of passage, but it's the thing that brings you into
2: no, I'd say my relatively informal rite of passage was coming out of the closet. Uh-huh. I was living in Israel at the time. I almost died in a bus bombing and I ended that, my time there by coming out of the closet. And that was a legitimate rite of passage. Yeah. So when I was 20.
1: And did you have support around you for that? Like a welcoming or?
2: No, I mean, when I was 20, it was
3: 1999.
2: Mm-hmm. Being queer at the time was a very different reality than being queer today. Mm-hmm. You know, I only knew one person in my entire world, not even media. Think about that for a second. You look around, I mean, you see reflections of yourself all over the world from TV, movies, grocery store, your kids' school, everything. You see reflections of yourself and your lifestyle. I saw no reflection of myself. Mm-hmm. The love stories on TV were not my love stories. The love stories in movies were not my love stories. Mm-hmm. So I had no reflection. One kid while I was studying abroad, I heard came out of the closet. Mm-hmm. So like a moth to a flame, I was drawn to him. And he was the one I came out to. And he was the one that basically said, you got to tell people. Mm-hmm. You know, Did I have people welcoming me? No, especially because 1999, you have to keep in mind, speaking of grief and trauma, you know, how many men died between 87 and 97? I mean, billions. Mm. So the community wasn't there to welcome new people coming out of the closet because they were dead from AIDS. So, you know, you have to take into consideration the time and place where things happen. Mm
3: -hmm. So
2: I came out on the tail end of like that. I mean, it wasn't over at all, but it was finding some ground.
3: Yeah.
2: And I mean, if I was born 10 years earlier, I would be dead right now. Mm. I mean, think about that. Yeah. So, no, I didn't, but it was still a rites of passage and it's still... You know, it's taken me many years, and a lot of people they might come out of the closet, but sure as hell is not a rite of passage. There's an enormous emotional immaturity in the gay and queer community. Right. Because of trauma.
3: Yeah. But so kind somehow kind of or other
2: for me. It was both a initiation and also my own makeup and the people that I surrounded myself with and the work that I've done. I have been able to transform that into maturity. But it's not a guaranteed thing.
3: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Do you think
1: that you eventually had enough welcoming of who you are by the people that used that surrounded you to be able to kind of fully cross the threshold?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I was, I attended the first and only international gay spirituality summit in 2003. Mm -hmm. And it was a gathering of 150 men from, I want to say like Thirty countries, all spiritual leaders, mm. African priests, mm. Buddhist monks, Shoshone elders, and the whole thing was a complete shit show. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> because there's a lot of divas in the room,
3: mm.
2: and it, actually, I was I was a young person at the time, and I stood up in that room as a young person, and I basically gave it to that group <laughs> as a young person. Wow! You all need to tape up because. There's too much, there were too many personalities. Mm. And then the whole thing flipped and it became this like insanely powerful weekend. Mm.
1: Because they did. Wow. After you stood up and you, yeah.
2: Wow. And I had, you know, it was like a real, I mean, I I don't want to go into so much into the details of it, but it was very powerful and it really helped me understand the the lineage that I am carrying, not just as a Jew, but as a queer person.
1: Do you want to say just a little bit about more about that lineage, or are we tangenting here? I feel like that this is so potent what you're sharing.
2: So, the lineage of being queer. Yeah, I mean, the lineage of being queer is just looking at like all of the ancestors that have been queer and that have died for that. It's not a small number of people, and most of them we've never heard of and will never hear of. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I stand in line with those people, and I carry the traditions that were afforded those people. And I don't do it silently. I do it with pride. You know, I wrote a chapter in this new book on rituals for coming out of the closet Mm. because that's a huge threshold. Yeah. And one of them is for the person coming out and the other one is for the family and friends that love that person.
3: Oh, beautiful.
1: Wow. Yeah,
2: because it is a big
1: deal to receive that, right? (laughs) To receive, oh, I've known you for your whole life, but I haven't actually known you. Right? That's big to receive as well. Yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah. But it's not about knowing or not knowing. It's about marking that crossing. That's the thing I'm advocating for. It's like something happened. Mm -hmm. Something big happened. Mm -hmm. What happened? Mm -hmm. And then who is this person? Mm -hmm. I thought this person was A, but now this person is B. Who's B? Yeah. And the ritual helps us pivot.
1: Yeah. It's got to be marked. Wow. Beautiful. Thank you so much. I'm just like totally blown away by where we, where we got to together today and just really grateful for it. And you've been making waves in the world for a while. And right now your book has been number one on Amazon for four consecutive days.
2: In two categories.
1: In two categories. Oh, okay. Amazing. (laughs) Congratulations.
2: One of them is parenting teenagers. Oh,
3: okay. Yes.
2: And the other one is, I think, philosophy and spiritual growth.
3: Okay. Yeah.
1: Beautiful.
2: Something's happening.
1: Something's happening. (laughs) Something is happening out there. It is the time. It's the time for this beauty to be out in the world and to be received. Especially
2: now with the pandemic, you know, I think there's a lot of these endings and beginning moments happening and people really need more guidance and more anchoring in order to cross these thresholds, both. Interpersonally and also even in you know their work or schools, mm-hmm. you know our children really need a lot more reorientation to what's happening, and ritual is one of the skills that what I'm bringing into the world mm-hmm. I'm standing with a lot of people, i'm not doing it alone, but adding my voice to that advocacy,
1: yeah, and a recipe book, which is critical yeah. it's not really out there yet, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, surprising. <laughs> Yeah. So if people, obviously people can get it on Amazon. What's the best way for people to get a hold of?
2: This? Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, Goodreads, or they can go to my website, both it's morningalters.com or my name, com. Both of those places have the book, but really, you know, your local bookstore should have it. It's being widely distributed. So.
1: Yeah. Wonderful. And that's a great place to get it to feed the local economy too. So. Yeah.
2: And yeah. if they don't have it, Tell, Tell them, them to
1: again. get it. <laughs> yes, yes, and it's also on Audible, right, if, for people who love to listen. Oh yeah, so yeah. Thank you. I
2: spent three weeks in a recording studio recording that audiobook. So beautiful. Yeah. yeah. So I'm yeah. proud of that. I basically these days, like it takes me six months to read a book, and it takes me like five days to listen to a book. So
1: yeah,
2: I'm an audiobooker.
1: Yeah, no, it's a great way to to take it in, and and I love when it's the actual author reading their book because then yeah, it exactly. feels like you're in the in the living room, you know, getting to yeah. to receive the teachings. It's kind of like a return to the old way of like auditory um, exactly learning. So yeah,
3: yeah, exactly.
1: Well, thank you so much for joining us. And is there any last words that you want to leave people with today? Or?
3: Keep the faith. Beautiful
1: yeah Dave, the work you're doing and the beauty you're making in the world is so extraordinary it's been such a pleasure to yeah it's been such a pleasure to share this time with you today and just to get to know you more so thank you so much for joining us
2: thanks for having me this has
0: been another episode of through the dark woods podcast i'm your host josiah tamira crossley If you feel up for it, I deeply appreciate you rating and reviewing this podcast on Spotify or your preferred listening platform. You can also join my email list to stay tuned to upcoming offerings and events, as well as receive occasional missives and musings from my pen to your inbox. And to learn more about Through the Dark Woods, real life skills for navigating grief and trauma, check out throughthedarkwoods.ca. Our next round starts March 7th. May this work benefit all beings everywhere. May all beings be happy May all beings be free, free of suffering and the causes of suffering. May we all recognize liberation together, wishing you a harmonious day filled with connection to yourself,
1: your people, and the natural world.